everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. And throughout the summer, we've been in a series called How Jacob Became Israel. But today's passage is definitely no fairy tale ending. It records such a disturbing set of events that you may even wonder, what's it doing in the Bible? But it contains important lessons about how to respond to injustice in our world. And we're certainly facing a time when injustice is prominent in all of our minds. If you're new to our ministry, an extra special welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to hear from you in the comments below to let us know you're listening in. Now, to set the scene for today's passage, I want to share John Bukima's account of a man named John Roth, who was attending a conference in Hamburg, Germany. It was late at night and he was on a commuter train when an elderly man with a mental illness boarded the train. The man was dressed, dressed in clothing that was tattered and dirty. As he took a seat, he became the focus of four teenagers who were covered in chains and tattoos and piercings. What started as laughter turned to taunts, and soon they were shouting obscenities and mocking his mental condition. Then one of the teens shook a half-fold can of beer and aimed a spray directly into the man's face. Without warning, they began kicking his legs with heavy boots and punching him in the arms and face. Roth later recounted what was going through his mind as he witnessed what was happening. He said, Seated toward the back of the car, I looked on with a mixture of horror and fear as the terrible scene unfolded before me. I'm not a big person. I'm not trained in any of the martial arts. I've never considered myself particularly brave. Yet as a professing Christian, I knew with absolute certainty that I could not simply sit back and watch this helpless old man be mercilessly beaten. I whispered a deep prayer, God, calm my fear. Show me the right thing to do. And then I got out of my seat and walked purposely toward the old man and his attackers. Now, I'm going to keep you in suspense for a little while before I tell you how things ended up. <laughs> but what do you imagine he's going to do? What do you think you would do? How do you respond to the evil and injustice that you see around you? Today, unfortunately, you don't have to look far for examples of it. How do you deal with it? That's what we're considering in today's passage. I'd encourage you to turn with me at this point to Genesis chapter 34. Now, if you've been with us th throughout this series, you may be a little bit surprised at this passage. So far, we've seen Jacob blessed with wealth in a large family. He's wrestled with God and received his blessing. He has a new name and a new identity. And last time we saw that he's reconciled with his brother and back in the promised land. What are you expecting the next line to be? I I'm just waiting for someone to say, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Except that line doesn't come. We'll see what happens instead. I'm going to read today's passage in a number of sections, so it'll help if you keep the passage open in front of you. But I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2. Genesis 34, 1 and 2. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, this is the word of God, but 
What is it doing in the Bible? God has made Jacob some amazing promises. And having sought God's blessing, he's ready to settle down in the promised land. But he's not in paradise yet. In verse 1, it says that Dinah went out to see the women of the land. But while she was seeing the women of the land, she was seen by one of the men of the land. And the impression we're given is that Jacob is totally unprepared for the dangers that his family will face. Dinah's just a young teenager at this point. And Jacob sends her in to explore the town, seemingly completely naive to the evil that might be lurking there. It's almost as if Jacob assumes that God's blessing means that he can skate through life untouched by the pain and the sin, the corruption that's a part of it. When I first became a Christian, I was just as naive. I didn't know that I could still be hurt by the pain of this world. Moses knew that as the nation of Israel entered Canaan, they needed to do so with their eyes wide open. They weren't in paradise yet, and so they'd have to watch their backs. The exchange in this chapter gave them and offers us an insight into just the evil of this world. In addition to the pain and the, of abuse, we also see the lure of compromise. Watch the pitches that Hamor and Shechem, who we just saw in, in verse 2, uh, th- what they make to, uh, to, to try and persuade in verses 8 to 12. Follow along as I pick up verses 8 to 12. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem belongs, longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now it's clear that Shechem wants as a wife the woman he's abused. And he and his father are pressing their case as persuasively as they know how. Shechem's not only willing to pay as much as they ask to marry Dinah, but his father Hamor suggests that they join forces. In in verse 9, he's proposing that their young people all intermarry with one another and become this large and powerful tribe. Then in verse 10, he offers land and the promise of trade. And the temptation to Jacob just couldn't be stronger. He's an outsider, and Hamor and Shechem, they're powerful people. With those kinds of connections, there'd be no limit to Jacob's potential. He'd he'd have to forget the injustice that was done to his daughter and ignore the fact that they worshipped other gods. But if he could just bend his principles in those two areas, he'd have a shortcut to everything that he'd been looking for, and life would be so much easier. But he's not in paradise yet, and so Jacob would be wise to watch his back. Hamor and Shechem, they're making some appealing promises when they speak with Jacob and his sons. But then when they return to their own people, it's like the story changes. 
They have to now convince the men of their town to be circumcised as a condition of Shechem marrying Dinah. But look at how they make their appeal to them. In verses 22 and 23, it says, Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. You look at that side of the story, and it doesn't sound like they're looking to bless Jacob and his sons after all, does it? They've made them promises they have no intention of keeping. They see the marriage as a corporate takeover of Israel's assets. If Jacob's not careful, not only will he suffer the abuse of his daughter, but he'll lose his inheritance, the wealth that God has given him, as well as the blessing and the mission that God has placed on his life. And the warning to us is that the world is always making false promises. It's a dangerous place and we need to be on our guard. God may have blessed us, but we're not in paradise yet. So we need to watch her backs. Now, how do you think that Jacob's going to respond to all of this? What's he going to do when he's confronted with injustice and tempted to compromise? Interestingly, even though the chapter is 31 verses long, only two of them are given to Jacob. When I read them, I think it'll be clear to you why. The first one comes in verse 5. It describes his daughter's, uh, his response to his daughter's rape. It says this, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. There's no expression of outrage. He doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't formulate a plan. We're never given any indication that he feels anything. He's completely passive. He's silent as he waits for his sons to come in from the field. And the chapter gives every indication that he's largely abdicated his role as a leader or even as a parent. He's just going to leave it up to his sons to decide what to do. In the meantime, he's content to just sit on his hands. Now, it needs to be said that there are times when silence is golden. But in this case, when you're confronted by the evils of abuse, it's inexcusable. And as we'll see in a moment, it results in his own son's descent into evil themselves. If you're passive in the authority that God has given you, in whatever sphere that might be, the Bible warns that you are actually inviting sin to flourish underneath you. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11 gives some uh, warning in that regard. It says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. It's saying that if the people who have the authority to confront injustice fail to do so, it only fans the flame for more injustice and other sinful responses. And as we'll see, that's exactly what happened under Jacob's passive leadership. Now, with all that I've said, you might get the impression that Jacob didn't say anything at all. That's not quite the case. We actually have to wait until verse 30 
But there we get his only word of response, and I'll read it for you. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you brought, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob's daughter has been assaulted and kidnapped at a time when there is no police force or formal legal process. If there's going to be justice, he's the one who's expected to seek it. After deciding to keep his peace in verse 5, we have to wait for another 25 verses to see any response from him. And when it comes in verse 30, all we see is his condemnation of Simeon and Levi's response. Part of me wants to shout to Jacob, if you're not willing to be part of the solution, don't sit back and criti criticize those who are. It's not that I'm defending what the sons did, but it seems at this point, Jacob's lost his moral authority to speak. Even so, notice what he says. Do you see what he says about his daughter, Dinah? Take a good look. Notice a verse. There's absolutely nothing, nothing about his daughter. And there's no mention of God either. Can you see who he does talk about though instead? Look at the pronouns. Me, me, my, me, me, I, I, my. It's all about him. That's all that he's thinking about. He's more concerned with his own comfort than he is with his daughter's justice and honor. He's more concerned with his own reputation than he is with hers. And you and I do this every time we ignore the injustice that we have the authority to confront. I know that as a parent, there were certainly many times when I saw things that one of my children had done and I just pretended not to see it. Just too much effort, take too much work. I was too tired. Every parent has done that. But if that kind of passive response to sin characterizes your leadership as a parent, you've abdicated your authority and you will see sin flourish in your children. But the same is true for whatever area of authority you have. It's always easier to look the other way. It's always easier to pretend that it's not your problem. But being passive is no way to respond to the injustice of this world. Silent isn't, silence isn't always golden. It can be part of the problem, not part of the solution. Now, Jacob, through his silence and his passive stance, shows us one terrible response to the injustice and evil of this world. But his sons, Simeon and Levi, they show us another. And the problem is that they started in a good place. I want you to compare their response in verse 7 with Jacob's silence that we already looked at. I'll read the verse. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. They were right to be indignant. What had happened to their sister was an outrageous thing. 
Their anger was justified, and it showed the inadequacy of Jacob's passive silence in contrast. Proverbs 8.13 says this, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The, the message is that you can't love God and be indifferent to the things that dishonor him or the things that oppose him. You can't love people and be complacent when you see them being abused and mistreated. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, states the same truth in a slightly different way. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor is one of the strongest words for hatred that you can use, right? The Greek word means to detest and have a horror of it. And we're commanded to feel that way regarding evil and injustice. The first half of the verse actually implies that if we don't, our love isn't really genuine. There's something false about it. And that convicts me because I realize I can often feel numb to sin. News and entertainment are just so saturated with it. And so sin loses its power to shock me the way it should. By contrast, Simeon and Levi demonstrate an anger towards sin that is right and appropriate. Unfortunately, without any leadership from their father, because of how passive his response is, they fail to act on that anger in a godly way. And instead, they themselves sin to try and address sin. Now, when Hamar and, Shech and, and his son Shechem come to try and work out some kind of re resolution, in verse 13, it says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. The sons of the deceiver resort to deception. They say that they're open to Shechem's marriage proposal to their sister, but only if every male in their town is circumcised. They take what was something to be treated as holy, the sign of circumcision. It was supposed to be a mark of their inner purity and the blessing of the covenant. And they turn it into a means of deception and vengeance. The plan is to attack while the men in the town are recovering from what would have been a crude and painful procedure. And in verses 25 to 29, we get a description of the massacre. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and all their, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. What started as righteous anger turned into bloody vengeance. In response to the abuse of one woman, bad as it was, they killed all the men of an entire town and took their wives, children, and all their possessions. This wasn't sanctioned by God. 
This wasn't directed by his will. This wasn't just a healthy expression of their zeal. It was just revenge gone off the rails. In trying to execute justice, they became worse abusers than the people they were trying to confront. And if you find a passage like this disturbing, that's exactly how you should feel. It's supposed to feel disturbing. It's supposed to warn us of how vengeance can make monsters out of us. And the fact is that we see this in the church today. The perception of evangelical Christians is that we're angry. We're angry about our loss of cultural power. We're angry about the world, that the world doesn't adopt our values. We're angry that people don't agree with us. And we often have a hard time distinguishing between righteous anger and unrighteous vengeance. And we don't just do that with the world. We can do that with each other. We can act out with unrighteous anger toward each other. We can do the same with our children. Instead of being passive towards sin, sometimes we can be cruel and demeaning in how we treat it. The problem with this chapter is that you come to the end of it and it doesn't feel like there's any resolution. Jacob rebukes his sons in verse 30. They try to justify their actions in verse 31. But you could read this and conclude, I guess this is all there is. Maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. Maybe God doesn't care that much about abuse and murder. Maybe he can't see. In one sense, the resolution comes, in part at least, in Genesis 49. That's a section where Jacob blesses his sons. And after passing over his firstborn, Reuben, because of his sin, he condemns Simeon and Levi's anger, calling it fierce and cruel. But their disqualification as leaders makes way for Jacob's fourthborn son, Judah. From his line comes Jesus Christ. He addressed the world's injustice through his teaching and his example. But he knew that wouldn't be enough. The human heart is too hard, too stubborn. So he took his indignation and righteous anger at sin, and he combined it with his unfailing commitment of love for humanity. And he sacrificed himself to provide for our forgiveness and salvation. As one person has said, instead of the people dying for the sins of their prince, as happened at Shechem, the king of kin kings died for the sins of the people. But he also warned that he would come again, the next time bringing judgment to all who had rejected him. And it's only in him that perfect justice is met with perfect love. It's only in him that we see how God cares about the abuse and injustice in this world. And so it's only in him that we find our ultimate comfort and hope. Now, at the beginning of this message, we left John Roth sitting on a commuter train in Hamburg, wondering what he could do about the elderly man being humiliated and beaten by the teenage attackers. Well, after offering up a prayer, he called out the man, called out to the man. Hans, how are you? It's been such a long time since we've seen each other. Then slipping between the surprised attackers, he hugged the elderly man, helped him to his feet and said, come sit with me, Hans, we have so much to catch up on. The man followed him to the end of the car and sat down next to him with the teens looking on, unsure of what to do.
we're not in paradise yet. So we can't just be naive about the injustice of our world. Solutions aren't always easy, but there are alternatives to passive silence and unrighteous anger and vengeance. Those solutions begin with Jesus Christ, embracing both his justice and his forgiveness, and looking forward to the paradise that he has prepared for all who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who have been on the receiving end of the pain and abuse and injustice of an evil world. I pray, Father, that you would communicate to them your deep heart of love and compassion. I pray that you would speak to them of the coming justice that you will bring about, and it will be perfect. It will be complete. But I pray that you would also speak to them of your great love. That great love which seeks to embrace them, seeks to receive them, to welcome them as your child, even as you welcome each of us through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, like that man sitting on the train, we often see injustice and don't know what to do. We call out to you for wisdom. We pray for your guidance. We ask you for solutions rooted in the justice and the love that are ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray for healing and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has encouraged you with the love and concern that God has for you, even as it's warned us of some of the realities of this world's evil. If you have questions or need prayer, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if there's someone that you know who would be encouraged by this message, share it with them and be God's instrument to bring hope and encouragement. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.